I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're recording on today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I extend my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander listeners that we have joining us. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I said, if someone doesn't fix this, I'm going to kill myself right. because I can't deal with it. Like, and I'm, I'm doing it now. Like, I'm trying to, I feel like I can't catch my breath. Right now? Yeah. Do you want to take a break? Hello, welcome back to season two. It's been a while since you've probably heard my voice. I wanted to say a big thank you for everyone being patient. I was finishing off my master's degree, so we took a little bit of a break from the podcast, but I am so excited to share season two with you. The guests are absolutely incredible. And it just makes me so excited to be able to put these conversations out into the world. I'm really grateful for everyone who's listened so far. We have an incredible 35 countries on our listenership, which I find honestly mind-blowing considering I genuinely thought it would just be my friends and family listening to this podcast. Selfishly, I love having these conversations and I just hope that I can continue to do so and provide value and inspiration to anyone who's listening. The more that the show grows, the bigger guests that I have access to. So I'm really, truly grateful for anyone that's listening. Thank you so much. If you are liking the show, I'm going to just do a little request. I'm going to call a favor here for a second and just say whatever platform you're currently listening on, if that's Spotify or Apple or anywhere else you get your podcasts, if you could just take two minutes to leave a review, obviously five stars, that's the only way, (laughs) but please leave a review with whatever you love about the show or share it to social media, tell your friends and family about it. It just helps the show grow so much and allows me, as I said, to kind of pitch bigger and better guests as we go along and bring you more incredible conversations. Ultimately, that's my goal with this show. I want it to be empowering and inspiring And I want you to feel connected to other human beings. I I say this really regularly with guests. It's very rare that you would meet someone and within an hour discuss the topics that we do on this podcast and and really have the level of vulnerability and honesty. That's why I love podcasting because it's like this little special bubble. It's like a safe space for people to open up. And I promise that I'll continue to do that. I've had episodes that I haven't released because I haven't been happy with the quality or the kind of depth of the conversation. So just know that I'm doing my absolute best to bring you conversations that will hopefully blow your socks off. And I know that this one will be one of them. Luke is a professional boxer. He represented Australia at the London Olympic Games. He has many titles under his belt, including a bronze medal at the Commonwealth Games. He also captained the Australian boxing team at the 2010 Commonwealth Games. He's fiercely driven, but what surprises many people is that Luke didn't actually pick up boxing gloves until he was 19 years old. He's overcome a string of adversities, including generational drug addiction. He's now two years sober. Congratulations. Actually, more than two years. I think 780 days at the time of me filming this. He's in the fittest shape of his life, training for his final fight. Today, we discuss family trauma healing. This is incredibly vulnerable and powerful chat. Enjoy my conversation with Luke Jackson. This is Life Chats, deep and meaningful conversations with friends and strangers. 
Thank you for being here. Pleasure. I'm excited to talk to you because... It's been a minute. It's been a minute. Last time I saw you was a few years ago and I feel like I'm looking at a different human. Like you just look like you're healthy and well. And as we said off air, like there's always shit that's going on, but you look really well. And last time I saw you, I remember thinking like, I don't think he's okay. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of people thought that, you know, and it's crazy because the way I was brought up, it was always sort of survival mode. And Mm. even though I knew I wasn't okay, I knew I I was going to be okay eventually. Mm -hmm. It's just, I felt like I was in control of it. And at the time I was just out of control and was just self-destruction, you Mm -hmm. know? We'll get into it. I kind of start all the podcasts in a similar way because I think to understand where someone's at today, you really have to like look back into their childhood and their early life and kind of see how that played out. Can we talk about your upbringing? Um, When you think about your childhood, what's kind of like the first emotion that comes up? Just chaos and, Mm. you know, no stability. I didn't know whether I was coming or going. I always getting moved around place all the time. There was no structure. You grew up in Tasmania? Yeah, I grew up in, I was born in Hobart, a place called Clarendonville, and I was there with my mum and dad, but I don't ever remember them being together. Um, Any siblings? Yeah, I've got seven sisters and two two brothers. Were they all in the house at the same time? Nah, so before my mum and dad got together, my dad had three kids, Mm -hmm. two girls and one boy. My mum had one girl and one boy. And then my mum and dad met. They had myself and my sister. Mm-hmm. Then they split up and then my mum had a little daughter. That's why my mum and dad split up because my mum had an affair mm-hmm. and my dad didn't know that it was someone else's kid. Mm-hmm. It was a fucking mess. And when then, did that come out? Oh, my mum was pregnant and then dad yeah. found out that it wasn't his and it was a nightmare. And then they split up and then later on in life my dad ended up having another one, another daughter. But the guy that my mum was with that had the affair, he ended up killing himself. Wow. So that was hard for my sister. And then my other mum's boyfriend ended up killing himself as well. So it was all just my childhood was just crazy, man. Did you know that all this was happening as a kid or it's kind of like you're putting the pieces together as you as you get a little bit older? The thing about my mum and with Danny, may he rest in peace and and Graham, may he rest in peace, and my father and all that, I didn't really understand until later on in life and figured it all out Mm. from what I was told. But I sort of knew that something wasn't right with my mum and dad when they split up. Like it was, yeah, I remember like times like just having to run out of the house or just get away. I don't know where we were going, but just had to leave the house, you know. Mm-hmm. My sisters were o- older than me, so, like, they looked after me, you know. I've got seven sisters. Um, seven protectors. Yeah, they're, they're all amazing in their own right, you know, and we've all had struggles and we've all struggled with life, you know, in different ways, like many people have. But, um, yeah, they looked after me. I've got two elder brothers, but my sisters were sort of my protectors, you know, mm-hmm. even at school because I was really little. I'm still a small guy now, but I was really small, mm-hmm. like tiny. I used to get picked on. And my sister, Ellie, she used to stick up for me. She had a temper, mate. She didn't care <laughs> about any. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. What was school like for you? So a bit of like bullying <clears throat> or kind of fights and whatnot, but were you, did you like being at school? I liked being at school until grade seven. Mm-hmm. 
Then I hated it. Um, what changed? I got involved in um, drugs mm. as a kid, marijuana mainly, but dexamphetamines. My sister was on ADHD medication, which turns out now I've just been diagnosed with that. That's another story. So I'm, I'm on yeah. um, adult ADHD, which has been a big problem in my life and now I've sort of got it under control mm-hmm. seeing a new psychiatrist. But I was stealing the medication off my sister. At age like 10, 11. Yeah. My yeah. mum was giving me um, marijuana as a kid, you know. Right. I've got a photo of me sitting on a bench. And this is not having a go at my mum. I love my mum, but she didn't know any better. Like she just was doing, like I was a bad kid, man. How so? Like just like distracted just or naughty or? Naughty. Like I didn't care. Like I felt, I thought I could do whatever I wanted. Mm. I had no discipline. No yeah. one could discipline me, you know, and that comes from my upbringing. Mm. Like I had no structure. So mm. I just said, fuck everyone. I'm doing what I want. Like in school, like if they told me to take my hat off, I'd say, no, fuck you. Yeah. And I'd just walk out. Mm-hmm. But I got a photo of me sitting on a bench with an ounce of weed, a pack of cigarettes, a bong, <laughs> some scissors and a cup and a lighter and me sitting there next to it with a hat that says bong on it. <laughs> How like, old were you? Like 12. Wow. I'll show you the picture. Yeah, yeah I want to see it. <laughs> we'll upload it to the podcast channel. <clears throat> and my mum took the photo. Mm. So, anyway, I used to steal off everyone, didn't care, like stole, mate, whatever I could do to find my drugs. And I dropped out of school at the end of grade seven and just fucking winged it, man, you know? But how did you drop out? Was that something that your parents were like, do what you want? Or were you just, well, you my stopped parents going? had split up. And then mm. I moved in with my dad and, you know, all through primary school I was pretty good and then grade seven I was good and then I left at the end of grade seven. Well, I went to grade eight but I was wagging. I wagged mm. and got suspended so many times. Like teachers caught me um, with a knife in my bag. Cops come and got me one day. I wouldn't have done anything with a knife but, yeah, and then they caught me smoking and I was smoking on the way to the principal's office. Just like no yeah. care at all. Mm. And then I left and then I was stealing and, you know, I used to live by myself because my dad met a new woman, which is now his wife, Tracy. Mm-hmm. They lived across the road, probably two kilometres, but I could see the house, you know. If I look out the window, mm. I could see the house. And I lived there. All the other siblings are gone. I lived there by myself for like forever. Like How many years? Like five or six, you know. From, from age 10? Yeah, 11 on your 12, own? yeah, by myself. I remember the first night, Dad didn't come home and I was like, I was scared, you know? Mm. And I said, Daddy, come on home. He's like, yeah, and he'd usually come home and then struggle to fall asleep because he wasn't there. And then, like, I woke up in the morning and I looked and he wasn't there. And I'm like, oh, he didn't come home. I'm like, I can do this now. Then I was sweet. I could mm. stay by myself, no problem. So Dad was never staying there. Like, he'd come back and then, then I would work with him. And, but, like, I lived by myself, man. I did what I wanted. Where was your mum at this point? Did she know you were living on your own? Yeah, but my mum, she had a troubled life, you know, a lot of drugs, alcohol. And mm-hmm. my dad never done drugs, but he drank. And, um, yeah, he was just sort of off with his new little family, mm. which, you know, I don't hold grudges against anyone. At the time, was that something that pissed you off? or that? Yeah, you yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a lot of fights with my stepbrother, Adam. Um, which is Tracy's son, but we're good mates now, you know. Like time's a funny thing, you know, and you grow up. Mm-hmm. I'd done some bad shit, like stole money off my dad, stole money off people. and For drugs or? Yeah, funny story. My dad had a video player back in the day. That's how old I am. Jesus, 38. <laughs> Don't worry. I used to have a Walkman. It's okay. <laughs> he had a video player under his TV, right? 
So I'm in bed. This is before my sister got kicked out. I got kicked out a couple of times too because I got my eyebrow pierced, but I um, took it out so I could go back. Ellie was still at home then and Dad's like, because I sold his video player, all right, and I sold it for 50 bucks and mm-hmm. got two deals, like uh, 25 bucks each. So, uh, yeah. Okay. And I was laying in bed and this was a couple of days his video player had been gone and he hadn't even noticed under his TV mm-hmm. where he sits in bed, yeah. He's like, Ellie, Luke, where's my video player? I'm like, like in bed. Oh, I'm no. like, I don't know. I said, I don't know, Dad. He's like, fucking, it's gone somewhere. I'm like, I don't know. Anyway. It wasn't until years and years later I told him, I confessed up to it, when I'd sorted my shit out mm-hmm. a little bit. Well, I've only really sorted it out the last two years, to be fair. <laughs> okay. Fucking hell. Mm. I've been up and down a bit. But I said, look, I'm sorry, I uh, I stole that. I apologise, you know. What did you say? He goes, I fucking knew you did. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like 10, 11, you're living alone. How are you getting food? And I'm interested to hear, like, you start with marijuana and then you're selling things to get a deal, like how do you even find a drug dealer when you're 11 years old? Is that something that you're kind of asking older kids or like Yeah, it was everywhere. Like? It, yeah. Was, it was fucking everywhere, you know, mm. like back then it was weed and stuff like that, but it's just who you know, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Very, pretty easy. My brothers and sisters were older mm. than me and we used it's to, normal. My, you know, dad used to leave us to go down and get whatever and we'd be in the fucking bathroom smoking weed with my older brother and sister, mm-hmm. you know, like, but again, they didn't know better, like. I love my brothers and sisters. One of my, I'm, I've got one of the closest relationships with my oldest brother now, Jason. His name is. He's been through fucking a lot of shit, a lot of drugs. You know, I'm talking heavy drugs like heroin, ice, speed. Started off with marijuana, and we've been close, but not really close. And then he went to jail, and no one was there for him in court. Not even my father, you know. And I went to court mm-hmm. and was there and was saying, looking at him, was and he's upset, you know, he's mm-hmm. like, a, he's older than me. I said, you're going to be all right. And I know a couple of boys in Tassie that in jail. So I, I had him protected and looked after. So mm-hmm. he just did his time easy, you know, and he'd done three months and he changed his life, man. It changed his life and it pulled him out of the fucking mm-hmm. shit. It probably should have happened to him many years ago. But, and then when I've been on one of my massive down fucking spirals, we stayed in contact via text and he was always checking in on me, you know, and we formed a strong bond through that mm-hmm. and we're really close now. Were there ever any moments, like I'm sure we'll get into the trajectory, but ever any moments where you thought that's where your life was going, like you were going to end up in jail or, you know, yeah. worse? Yeah, look, a lot of my mates, that I'm far from perfect and there's a lot of good people that go to jail. Mm-hmm. They just make mistakes and I've made mistakes. I've been, I'm not proud of it, but I've been caught drink driving twice now, you know, mm-hmm. like if I got done again, I'd be in jail. That's why I had to make a decision to fucking pull my head in. Whereas some people, luckily I got boxing. Mm. You know, boxing saved my life. People can say it, but like it really did. It pulled me out of a lot of shit, you know, and I'm very thankful for the sport of boxing because it's always been there for me, you know. It's always been my... Your anchor. Yeah, my anchor, you know. It taught me to go to bed early because I've got to get up for training. It taught me to eat good because I've got to lose weight to be healthy, to fight. Mm. It taught me respect because you get beat up in boxing. When I was a kid, I thought I could take on the world, you know, and in a different way. I was a bit of a thug, you know, but Mm -hmm. like boxing taught me to control. Now I can take on the world, but I can control it. You wrote something on Instagram that I found so like powerful. I think you wrote a happy fighter is the best fighter or a powerful fighter. Yeah, Yeah. like, you know, I can fight, but like it's knowing when to fight, you know, like I don't need to fight. Mm -hmm. I like to fight. Like it's... Boxing is a gentleman's game. 
I was just a little thug on the street that thought I was a tough guy, but I wasn't mm. at all. I was just a lost kid, man, that needed some direction and some help and some love. I needed love, man. That's what I needed. And unfortunately, it's taken a long time in my life to actually feel good about myself, you know? Where did that realisation come in? Like, I was only acting the way I was because I needed love. Well, my girlfriend, Katie, we've been together nearly two years now, and she's been like a blessing from God. I met Katie a month after I turned sober, and it was like God sent this precious angel to watch over you because you are trying to work on yourself. And it's been hard, man. Like I'm hard work, but I'm very loyal and I'm very committed if I want something. But it's been a journey. So she's taught me what I feel is right and normal isn't right and normal. (laughs) But that's all I know. Mm -hmm. And like she's taught me a whole different side. Like her father He's an amazing man. Like he helped me so much like to get my mental health on track mm-hmm. and sat down with me and said, listen, mate, like whether you and Katie are together or not, like I love you. And I was just like, what did you say? Like you love me? Like I haven't even heard that from my own fucking family. Like mm-hmm. my own parents, like you tell me you love me? Man, like what do you mean? And then it's like, you know, I want to help you. I want to take you to get booked into the psych and just help me out, you know, and it's crazy. And the whole family's like that. her mother, her aunties, her sister, her whole crew. Like we go for dinner like fucking twice a week over there. <clears throat> I'm like, well, like we go for dinner. It's like, yeah, it's cool. And it's like, oh, we've got to go for breakfast and more. Okay. okay, what the fuck? We just saw them. <laughs> what the fuck do you mean breakfast, mate? we just seen them. Like we just seen them last night, though. It's like, yeah, we're going for breakfast now. I'm like. Fuck, I don't see my family for fucking two years. Mm. I didn't speak to my mum for five years at one stage, six years. Like, it's new, but this, you know what? I want to be a dad. That's my next goal in life. I want to be a father and I want to be the best dad I can. And now I've seen two different sides of life and I know what one I want them to see, Mm. you know? So it's still hard for me to commit to being so full on with family, but it's something I'm working it's like you've had two ends of the spectrum yeah. and you're slowly like working yeah, into and I feeling like more being, comfortable. Yeah, and I like being alone. Mm. <laughs> like a fucking, it's all you've known, right? I love being alone. Mm. I'm fucking used to it and I enjoy my downtime, you know? How, do, how is that navigated in your relationship? <clears throat> is that something where you like still need your own time or is that a conversation yeah, that needed to be had? Yeah, so Katie's a pretty special person. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel very lucky. She's taught me a lot. Like and when we met each other, she's like... We were friends and stuff like that. And she's like, what are you afraid of? And I said, I'm not afraid of anything. And she's like, not afraid of nothing. I said, no. And then I'm thinking about it. I said, you know what? I'm afraid of confrontation with people I love or care for. If I don't like you or know you and there's a blow up, I say, go fuck yourself. Get away from me. Or it's fine. But if I love you and there's a confrontation, I don't know how to sit and talk like a rational person, I'll even brush you, never speak to you again, even though I love you, mm-hmm. or we'll punch on and I'll fucking tell you to go fuck yourself. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know how to sit down and actually speak about, hey, you're my best friend, but, like, I don't like how you treated me like this and we need to sit and work it out. That for me was so scary. Because you'd never done it before. You'd no. never seen it before. No. So, like, she's taught me how to do mm. that and, like, 
as a relationship, we sit down once a week, every Sunday at our house like this, and we have a meeting of how our week has been and what we are happy with, un, sort of unhappy That's with. That's awesome. And <laughs> at the start, I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck are we doing? Yeah, like, why? Yeah. But you know what? It's a safe place. And she can bring up things that she's not happy with and I'm not going to spit the goo and yep. vice versa. It's like a little bubble where you can address what needs to be addressed. <clears throat> There's respect there and it yes, doesn't build respect. up. There's respect there and that's a mm. key word. That's a key word. I've never seen – I respect women because I've got a lot of sisters, so I've always been taught respect. I've never hit a woman because I hit my sister when I was a kid and my dad beat the fucking lights out of me when I was a kid, so it taught me not to ever touch a woman. So – I've got respect for women, but in different ways to sit down and fucking speak like an adult is hard because I just say, go fuck off, get away from me. I don't want to speak to you. And I think a lot of relationships, like everyone has that one relationship that changes things where you actually constructively work on things and you get to a point where you're like, okay, we have to work on this. We're doing this together. Because we're fucking friends, aren't mm, we? Like rather we're, than- we're friends and we're lovers and we want to do this. We're a team, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And another thing, I'll never... If I'm unhappy with Katie, I'll never let her know in front of people. I'll never put her on show in front of people. I'll wait till we get home and say, what the fuck did you do that? Mm. Like, I'll never blow up at her in front of people because that's a shit go. you mm. got to keep that shit behind closed doors because if people see weakness, they'll fucking try and rip your relationship apart and we are very strong. Totally. I think like just seeing the change in you as well <clears throat> says a lot about what that relationship yeah, has and, done and is doing for you. Yeah, and like I'm just trying to evolve, trying to be better in every situation, you know, and I'm trying to be the best partner I can, the best friend I can, and eventually I want to be the best father I can. I think I'll do a lot of my healing when I mm. become a father, you know. I lost my dog recently, Chevy, and I had that dog for nearly 14 years. That's him there. Mm-hmm. Um and it got sick out, out of the blue, you know. I spent like 50 grand trying to save the little fella and um, then he died and fuck, I tell you, like I never felt pain like that my whole life. My mum died in December last year and I didn't cry. I went to the funeral. Everyone there's crying. I'm like, okay. I got up, I spoke and I'm looking down my brother, he's crying. I'm like, okay, what's wrong with me? You know, what's wrong with me? And then I think that I was just masking all my feelings mm-hmm. with drugs and alcohol, even though I was sober then. But Chevy dying really, really, really fucking affected me. What did that dog mean to you? You say he, you felt like you were his father. Like what yeah, like that, was he? Yeah, like I've got you? another little dog, but like Chevy was always there. Like, you know, like he was always there on some of the benders that I used to go on and he was just always by my side. Like if it wasn't for that dog, I reckon there would have been a time I probably would have killed myself, you know, mm-hmm. like when I was high on drugs and alcohol. Mm-hmm. I want to touch on something you said earlier. Speaking of your mum, you said you found confrontation quite difficult with people that you loved. You didn't speak for six years. What happened? Well, my mum and dad hated each other towards it, like at the end, mm-hmm. obviously. And then my mum took me home one night and she wanted to come inside and she used to drink heavy. Mm-hmm. And she wanted to come inside to use the bathroom. I said, no, you can't. And she's like, yeah, and followed me to the door and she's banging on the door. I said, mum, you can't come in. What were you worried about by her coming in? Dad was in there and she's like, I want to come in. I said, you 
can't. Dad's in there and she's like knocked on the door. I said, Mum, if you knock on the door again, I'll, I'm not going to speak to you. She knocked on the door again. I said, Mum, if you knock on the door again, I'm never going to speak to you again. She goes, looks at me, she goes, I don't care. Knocked on the door. And I just undone the door, shut it. I didn't speak to her for seven years. Over a knock on the door? Yeah, I didn't speak to her for seven years. Is that because there was a bit more that led up to that? I don't know. I was, just, just I, just, I was just very, I'm a stubborn motherfucker. Katie's taught me not like to, now, now I'm, I'm very good. Is it because it's a protective thing for you? Like maybe. you stand by your word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe don't. You know, it wasn't until like after I started boxing and I went away and I come back and was at a Christmas thing and my mum was sitting over there and I just went up and said, hey, how are you? It's like seven years later. It's fucking madness. Did you address the fact you haven't spoken for seven years? No, nah, just pretend nothing ever happened. It's so fucking <laughs> stupid. Yeah. I want to rewind a little bit because we got really stuck in and we haven't really spoken about your journey through, you know, being an Olympian and I know there's a lot of healing with drugs and alcohol. So can we kind of go back to, you know, you've painted a picture of your childhood. Where did boxing come in? You said it saved your life. At what age did you kind of discover boxing? I started boxing when I was 18 or 19. I met a guy named Chris Polly and Nathan Polly and... We um, was at an underage nightclub and I just liked the way people looked at them mm-hmm. and the respect they got, you know, because I never had any attention as a kid. No one ever fucking done anything with me, kicked the football, nothing, you know. I used to kick the football on myself up in the air like a, a Aussie rules. I used to love playing football, but I liked the attention these boys got. So then I'm, I thought, fuck, that's pretty cool, you know. So I went along to the gym with them and... Before you know it, I was training and they said I had really good natural talent and I had a fight and I had another fight and before you know it, I was fucking, I was national champion. Like after six fights, seven fights, yeah, I was national champion. Within the same year, you start boxing, you're a national champion. Yeah, like a year later, I went to the Commonwealth Games, Mm -hmm. 2006. I I won a bronze medal for Australia. I had like 13 fights and then I set my sights on becoming an Olympian. And I've beaten a guy named Paul Fleming three times and then he beat me the fourth time. And so I missed out on my Beijing Olympics. What was that like at the time? How'd you cope with that? It was hell, man. I want fucking wanted to die. I had a lot of issues going on and that's when I got diagnosed. I, they said I had anxiety and stuff and I couldn't sleep properly. And Who picked that up? Or who, t- who did you tell? Well, I went to a doctor and I said, if someone doesn't fix this, I'm going to kill myself because right. I can't deal with it. Like, and I'm I'm doing it now. Like, I'm trying to, I feel like I can't catch my breath. Right now? Yeah. Do you want to take a break? <laughs> no, sometimes I do that. That's just normal for okay. me now. We can take a break if <clears throat> no, you need as well. It's pretty full on. Like, there's cameras and lights and you're telling, you're bearing your soul. So. No, like, because it, it just happens sometimes when I get a bit anxious. Yeah, and I'm not yeah. anxious at all, but I don't know. I actually... Have experienced that before where you're trying to obsessively catch your breath and you feel more and more like you can't and it can last like a whole day. Mate, this was out of control. felt like it lasted six years, right? Yeah. Anyway, they finally put me on some medication, sort of helped it a bit, but then it come back and it was out of control. It was out of control. Like you're not able to function properly in everyday society? Because you feel like you can't even talk properly because you're running out of breath. Yeah. It's fucking sick. Anyway. I sort of got to the bottom of it, but it comes comes back and forth from time to time. Anyway. They diagnosed you at like yeah. what, 18, 19? No, nah, this was like, fuck, 24. They give me these tablets. And looking back on like 
how you felt in that moment and they're like there is a name for this feeling and this is why you're feeling the way you are did you kind of look back and think I've been feeling this my whole life or yeah. was it a relatively new no, feeling? No it was my whole life and then I was like all this went and then it wasn't until after but when I qualified for Olympics mm-hmm. I was still on these same fucking tablets right and then anti-anxiety mm-hmm. and then they, I was misdiagnosed and I went to a psych because I was fucking going to kill myself again and then they diagnosed me with OCD. So they put me on sertraline, mm-hmm. right? And that helped massively, helped massively. So I remember like, and then my mum used to come into my room, turn my light on and off while I was asleep as a kid. Like a, a kid, just on and off. Like she had bad OCD, right? right? And then go and lock the door, unlock the door, lock the door, unlock the door. Stove on off, stove on off, stove on off, and then like touching stuff, and then I was doing it, and so it was picked up as a kid, but no one fucking seen me doing it, and fucking took me to the psych or doctor or Wiseman kid doing this, so it just went unnoticed, yeah. And like a lot of shit, man. Like it's so much shit. Like I didn't even know how to fucking clean myself as a fucking teenage boy because no one fucking told me how to clean myself as a kid. And then all these years later, I get then diagnosed with ADHD and OCD, like. I'm on 50 milligrams of Vivance a day. I'm on 200 milligrams of Sertraline a day. Is it helping? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like I feel good. At the minute I'm having a bit of a fucking breathing issue. Do you want, do you want to <coughs> take a walk or anything? We can, no, no, we can take fine. a break. No, really. it's fine. It just happens from yeah, time to time. Yeah, of course. And like it's a, as we said, I just want to already acknowledge how honest you've been. It's not easy to talk about legitimate trauma and I want to reassure you that the people that listen to this podcast are so open-minded kind and understanding and this is a positive and empowering show yeah. like and you know like it's okay to not be okay it's okay to fucking ask for help because I needed help and it wasn't there for me until I'm 38 now Don. Mm. all right I just seen a psych the other month to finally get Diagnosed with ADHD, and when I had that med, because the other meds used to make me so fucking tired. The anti-anxiety. No, the sertraline for the, for the OCD, OCD. But because yeah. I was missing the other ingredient, tired, mate. You got no idea, tired. Like fucking sleep eight hours of a night, and then have to mm. sleep four hours during the day. Mm. Like fucking horrendously tired. Who, I suppose you said your doctor picked up on the OCD because you went and you told him. And was he asking about your behaviours and whatnot? Mm. And you were kind of telling him. Yeah. Who picked up on the ADHD? Dr. Ackers, he's from Mind Oasis Clinic, Dr. Akers. So we did a visual thing on the phone. Mm-hmm. I rang him and said, how I'm feeling? I said, Bella, I don't know what's going on. I'm so fucking tired all the time. I'm irritable. Mm-hmm. Like I was jumping out, out of cars trying to fight everyone for tooting their horn at me. Like wow. I was so irritable. Mm-hmm. I got charged for um, intimidation over a parking inspector giving me a ticket. Then he, he mouthed off and I said, fuck you. And he goes, here's, have, have another ticket. Give me two tickets. I said, you've been a smart ass. Like, mm. anyway, he got in his car and I went up. I wanted to ask him why he gave me two tickets. So I un- tried to undo his door and he locked the door and I'm knocking on the window and I said, Bella, come out and speak to me. And he said that I hit the window and I didn't punch the window. If I did, I would have smashed it. So anyway, I had to go to court. They put my face in the paper and mm. everything. So I got charged for intimidation. And I got a good behaviour bond. This was like a year and a half ago. So I told him, the guy about that, the, the psych, and done all this stuff and told him I'm sober. And 
He goes, oh, have you heard of ADHD? And I'm just laughed at him. I said, mother, don't try and diagnose me with something else. else. Like, I'm sick of this shit. I said, I'm fucking tired, mate. Like, I'm very tired. He goes, okay, go. This is where he gained my trust because he goes, go away and get blood tests to show me that you're sober and drug free. Because mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't believe me. Because mm-hmm. my old psycho used to tell him that I was off Coke and I was still taking Coke. And I'd go there and he'd say, How you feeling? I said, I feel good. And mm-hmm. I'd lie to the psychiatrist, leave there feeling good about myself because he told me how good I'm doing, and then mm-hmm. get on with my life mm-hmm. and think that I was, you know, it was a fucking lie. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he made me go and get the blood test and all that, and then I went back and then he goes, Do some research on ADHD and come back to me. And he asked me, Do I fidget? I said, No do I have trouble paying attention to certain things? And I'm like, no. And then I started a new job and taking classes at a different gym. And I had to sit there and listen to what they were saying and not have my phone. Mm. And I realised how fidgety I actually am because what stops me from being fidgety was my fucking Scrolling. phone. That mm. was my fidgetation. Is that a word, fm <laughs> It is now. Fucking <laughs> is now. I created that word. <laughs> So I was on my phone a lot mm. and I didn't even realise that's how I was stopping my fidgetation. Because yeah. it's like a, a they're literally designed like slot machines, yeah. the, the apps. So you're just constantly like so scrolling, I'd, scrolling, scrolling. It's so bad I'd, I'd train people in a 30-second rest. Like I've got get pads on. I've got pads on, right? I say 30-second rest. I just like get my phone. I'm like, and then I realise, what are you even looking at? But I like, just mm. sit there and talk to the person because you're so crazy in your head you can't stay still. So that was that. And I went back to him I said, Got the blood test and I said, fuck, man, I've got this. And then this the whole time my dog was sick and that mm. and then sort of got finally got diagnosed with it and took the medication. And I felt so good. I was just like a life changer. It was a, like a life changer and then my dog died. And I'm like, fuck, my dog actually left me when I was finally right. You know, he stayed with me all these years and then he left when I was finally get my life in order. You when know, you're ready. Just, yeah, it's fucked. Even just you reflecting on the fact that, like, <coughs> you go to a psych and and lie, obviously you weren't ready to, like, really deal with what was going on and now you've got a beautiful, loving partner and her whole family yeah. and you're ready to kind mm. of confront those things head on. Mm. Talk to me about, so you're boxing, you've got your own mental health issues going on. Where does it start to really derail or spiral out of control? Like you're 25 at this point, so it's been 15 years since then. Is there a particular period where you're like, that was out of control? Well, the thing was, I'd done weed and dexamphetamines, but I'd never tried cocaine. Mm-hmm. At that age, 25? Mm. Mm-hmm. So all my mates used to do it and they wouldn't even bother passing the plate around mm. to me because I wouldn't do it. I had the goal of becoming an Olympic boxer. And from the year 2000, I stopped doing drugs, smoking, cigarettes, drinking, everything until 2012 I made the Olympics, yeah, so I was like... 12 years. Yeah, like I'd have a beer and mm. that here and there, you know, but I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't smoke or do mm. drugs, yeah. After the Olympics, I had a girl at the time all together and fuck, I feel sorry for her now, like looking back, I was like, fuck, I could have been a better partner, but... You know. I was going to ask if you, like we were speaking about Katie, but what were your relationships like during, you know, the benders and training for the Olympics? Like did you have partners or were yeah, you kind of I on had, your own? Yeah, so for the Olympics, her name was Jayan. And, you know, I remember after I made the Olympics, I said to her, I used because I said in the interview that I used to pray every day that if God let me make the Olympics, I'd die two weeks later. 
if God lets me make the Olympic Games, I'll happily die two weeks later. Let me go home, spend some time with my family, eat some food and my girlfriend. Did you mean that in a and way that you were going to take you, your own life? No, just let, you were like just happy that, to die. That's how much it meant to me. Yeah. And I used to say this prayer hundreds of times in my head every day. It was like my security your blanket. Mantra, yeah. yeah. And she goes, I heard you say that, but what about me and what about, like, we want to have a family? I said, I didn't care. I'm sorry. Like, And, like, the look on her face was like, fuck. And then, anyway, we ended up breaking up because it was toxic at the end, yeah. But she was a good woman and she's happy now, which I'm happy to see. And there's the things I regret there too, you know, like we got the dogs together and she left and I said, look, if you go, like, you can't have, like, the – the dogs are going to stay with me and I regret not letting her see them and it's a big thing that plays on my heart a lot and I haven't spoke to her since, you know, so if she sees this somewhere or hears it, you know, I do like and I tell Katie about it all the time. I feel really bad for that. It's one thing. Would that, you ever reach out and say it and get it off your chest? I don't think she'd want to hear it mm. but, you know, like if she would allow me the time, I'll definitely apologise and I don't think it's going to help. But it's a fucking shit go, mate. Mm. Shit go by me. You're like, fuck, we split up. Okay, we split up. It was her choice to split up. Okay, don't fucking be a dickhead and try and keep the dogs off her. But I was struggling, man. You know, like anyway, that's... It's this. common. Like, so look at how many, not many breakups <clears throat> end well. People split yeah. assets, people split dogs and even kids. And like often it's quite messy because yeah. there's hurt involved. People are hurting and yeah, it's and- hard to be rational. Yeah, and I, I don't forgive myself for that. It's, it was a fucking shit go by me. And that's something that I I have to live with, you know, and especially when Chevy died, I felt really bad for her. And, I, like, in my head was like, fuck, should I tell her Chevy's dead? And it's just like, mate, Chevy died when you fucking took her out of his life. Yeah. So that, that was a fucking, I, it fucking makes me feel really bad, you know. Thanks for but, sharing because I know it's difficult. But shit. you never know, like... I had a yoga teacher who was kind of talking to me about something similar where her kids were involved and I think there's power in like reaching out not only for them but for you and acknowledging like you might not want to hear this and they don't have to hear it. It's more so like for you to Yeah, you're right and and you're right and maybe I should. Like I um, had a similar situation. I was a really like good kid. I wasn't, definitely wasn't a mean person, but in high school, it's very easy to get dragged into like school ground drama and petty shit. And I remember being really mean to this one girl in class. And like that had played on my mind for years after the fact. And I particularly remember like a school game that we played where I like kind of like tricked her and screwed her over and she was crying. And it wasn't until we're like 24, so like six years after high school, I just like have this moment where I'm thinking about it. Like I'm just going about my daily life and I'm like, I really fucked that girl over. Like I feel horrible. Like I have no idea what effect that had on her. I'm sure she's fine. But what if she's not? Like, and so I, I reached out and I think it's such, it seems like such a trivial thing at the time, like to contact someone seven years after the fact and say, I think I did this to you in high school. You might not remember, but I hope you're all good. No, that's um, good. But it felt so, it honestly felt like a weight <coughs> off my for chest. For you, hey? yeah, for you, not mm. so much for them and maybe I should do that. Um, it just felt like I could move forward knowing now I've done what I can do because I'm a different person now. Yeah. Like we only act in a way that we know how. Like we didn't know what we knew then and now we're better people and we have more empathy perhaps and we can acknowledge it wasn't the way to yeah, go. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure that if she's seen me now, the man I am now, 
compared to the man I was when I was with her. I'm a complete different person, you know. I think so too. So maybe that's something that I can... Maybe. It's definitely a spiritual journey, all of it, like the forgiveness and the self-awareness. And it's much more than just like healing from trauma. It becomes like bigger than you, I think, when you delve into that stuff. But tell me, we started talking about kind of relationships, but you were telling me about how you started taking drugs, coke, when you were training. Yeah. So after I broke up with Mm JM, I was sort of out of fucking sorts, you know, and everyone... Or as I said, always used to pass the plate around and never even thought of it. And then one night it was there and I just fucking grabbed it and fucking had a line of coke. And How old were you? 28 years old. Mm-hmm. And fuck, I loved it. What I, did you love about it? I just loved the way it made me feel. How? How did it make you feel? Oh, fuck, on top of the world, mm-hmm. like happy. And then the come down would come and no one really understands like the extent like I did coke and drinking and that, but from 2013 to two years ago, my whole professional career, I was doing cocaine, heavy. How much is heavy? Like I'll go for days. Using it like every few hours or? Yeah, Mm -hmm. like every fucking 30 minutes. For days at a time. Yeah. So, and then if I had a fight coming up, I'd stop three months before. Mm -hmm. It was three months. 12 weeks, and I'd train and eat like a fucking soldier. In my head, I'd have this Coke ready for after the fight. I'd have the f- weigh-in, I'd eat, I'd fight, straight back to my house, and I'd bend for days, at least two days. Did anyone know that's what you were doing? Oh, yeah. People Trainers? No, nah, no. Nah. Mm. People that were with me knew. Mm. Then I'd sleep. And then this would go on and on until I had another fight locked in. I'd do that every weekend until I had a fight coming. What was it like going 12 weeks clean? Like what is the actual reality of someone who, you know, uses regularly and then having to completely just cut it out? Like what? Yeah, I was obsessed. I was obsessed. Mm. Like a fucking, I used to make me train so hard. Mm. It was one or the other. And then I'd have the fight and then I'd go on a massive bender. It was my reward. I was thinking about the coke before I was thinking about the win. Mm-hmm. I'd have a 10-round fight, busted up face, can't see how my fucking... When I fought Cole Fremont for the, the world... Photos. I fought Cole Fremont for the world title. <laughs> I went back to mine. I slept. Next day I got up. I went out. I got off my head on rack in Northern Ireland, Belfast. I didn't sleep. I went back to my hotel, got my shit, got on a plane... I'm at the airport, little kids coming up getting their fucking photos with me off my fucking head. I shut, I get on a plane, go to Italy, haven't slept. It was that hot in Venice where you got, there's no mm. fucking roads. Cobblestones, <clears throat> yeah. Dragging these fucking suitcases for kilometres in the heat. Hadn't slept mm-hmm. in two days. That hot. Get to the hotel. Instead of going out and looking around Italy, I fucking have a shower and go to sleep for a day. Then mm-hmm. I get up and I'm trying to live normal life. But then like. This just fucking went on and on and on and on and on my whole fucking career as a professional boxer. But then I got from 12 weeks, eight weeks. Mm. And then it was, I think one fight was six weeks. And then I'd have these turmoil points in my life where I'd just go completely off the fucking rails and wouldn't fight for a year and I'd just be off my head most of the year. Mm. What did your relationships look like at that point? How are you holding down a job? How are you? Yeah, like, fuck. I remember one stage I was off my head 
and people will message me and say, Luke, I'm here to train. It's like, fuck, sorry, I'm not here. Next one's on me. Like, and I train people for free because I fucked them around so much, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. One person come to train once and I never used to charge them. I'm not going to mention their name, but maybe they would want me to, maybe they wouldn't. Why didn't you charge them? Because um, just a good friend, mm-hmm. you know, and I wanted them to do well mm-hmm. in boxing. So I didn't charge them trying to help them with, they ended up training for a couple of fights, one fights, and they're doing really well now. Awesome. But anyway, I had supposed to train them and they go, I'm here. I'm like, fuck, I forgot, I'm off my head. I said, okay, so I'm upstairs. You can come up, I'll train you, but I said, I just want you to be prepared. I'm mm-hmm. off my mm-hmm. fucking head. Mm-hmm. So you go, yeah, all right, come on. I've got a cigarette in my mouth because uh, I used to smoke a fucking pack of 50s off my head. Like, a day. Yeah, fuck. As soon as I next day wake up, get it away from me. Hates wow. cigarettes. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I used to do this trick where I grab the butt, pull it out, rip it in half, put it back in, make the cigarette stronger. Fucking crazy. Anyway, this person's come up. And they're there. I'm off my head, smoking a cigarette. I've got them skipping in the courtyard. Mm-hmm. I'm smoking a cigarette. You've done that to me before. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like yeah. putting it all together. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, and my mate comes up, Nate Carroll, and he looks like he's like, Luke, you like come and check on me because he knew mm-hmm. like what I was like. So he just pop up and check how I, and he's seen, he's like, no, but like, he's like, all good, but stay there. Come down. And he took my client downstairs and trained him for me. Legend. Love that guy. Mm. You had. Some great friends at the time, lifelong friends. Did anyone ever try and step in when you're like in the depths of despair or like on the come down and say like we're going to help you? Or did they kind yeah. of realize you were on your own journey? You're going to well, no, no one can ever really help me. Like I always had a thing with suicide. What do you mean? I always thought I was going to kill myself. From what age? From a kid. Wow. Yeah, I thought that that's the way I was going to die, and I was okay with that. I just thought I'm going to fucking go out with a bang. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I, got, I never got attention as a kid or what, but like I was like, that's the way to like to fuck. Bang. And I had this in my head the whole time. My sister messaged me once and I was off my head and she's like, you know, I'm really worried about you. You know, I've got a feeling that you're going to hurt yourself. And I said, look, I've got a feeling I'm going to do it too, but like it's okay. I'm okay about it, you know, like and I thought about it so much. And I knew that no one could help me. I had mates, one of my mates, Daniel, Nathan, Nathan come and checked on me once and had someone come and check on me and then Daniel was worried about me and come out to my house when I used to live in Coogee and was banging on the door and I had the door locked and, you know, he's yelling and texting. It's like, I know you're never like, if you don't let mm-hmm. me in, like, I'm going to kick the door down. And um, Ben said to let him in and, like, you, no one wants to hear that when you're sitting there off your head. And mm. um, I don't need someone to tell me what I'm doing wrong when I'm off my head. I just need some fucking... You need support. Support, that's mm. right. And you've got to be so careful. The last thing you should do when someone's off the head is put them down. You need to just be with there with them and tell them it's going to be okay and try and speak to them when they're sober. Did anyone <coughs> ever have those conversations with you when you were sober? No, because I think, I don't know, like, a funny story. I was sitting there once in my house in Coogee, off my head, by myself. I used to do it by myself mm-hmm. a lot towards the end because... Mm-hmm. I just didn't want anyone judging me, you know. And I'm sitting there and I'm speaking. I re- reacted to Tyson Fury's story on Instagram because mm-hmm. me and him are follow each other and he's a good friend. And I reacted to his story. He goes, hey, Lukey, how are you? I'm like, um, I'm fucking all right, man. Like I'm just going through the fucking the, the, the shit, you know. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I know how it is. And I said, yeah, like I'm fucking abusing drugs and alcohol and blah, blah, blah. So he sent me a voice message. He's like, 
I know what it's like and I can show you the voice mm. message. You gotta pull yourself together and get back in the in the gym and you know, I guarantee it'll you'll come out the other side. And I'm not saying that's what stopped me, but like it was like a week later I pulled my shit together and stopped. Stopped. I wanna talk about that. But you did you mentioned you always thought you were gonna die by suicide, which I find like it's amazing that you don't feel that way anymore. But yeah. were were there ever any attempts or like real yeah. plans? Yeah, I tried to kill myself when I was in Tasmania. I took a heap of um sertraline tablets. When was this? Um, this was in two thousand fifteen mm-hmm. or fourteen. Dad found me and sort of fucking just typical fucking old school father type just fucking told me to pull my head in, you know? I didn't really do anything after that, just fucking. Did you ever consider like towards the end of your journey with using drugs, like going to rehab? Is that something that you Yeah, well, done? I was speaking to, you know, I went to seen a psychiatrist mm-hmm. in, in Tasmania and they wanted to put me into a rehab in Melbourne mm-hmm. because I was just fucking sick of being away from home. When I lived in Tassie, I was always away for training camp. I just didn't want to be away from home again. I was trying to run a fucking gym. Like I was trying to do everything, you know, mm. with a fucking massive drug cocaine addiction, pay for a gym, pay for a fucking mortgage and fight the fucking demons of fucking necking myself daily, you know, like. And he didn't want to put me in the rope clinic because he didn't want people knowing and I didn't want people knowing then either, you know, because mm. I was still quiet about it. No one knows any of this, you know. How do you feel about sharing this sort of stuff? Yeah, look, I'm 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 okay with it because I'm a changed man. I've got an app on my phone of how many days, uh, on how many days I'm s- sober. Like a lot of people don't know this. So when I do this thing, right, I put the thing up. I've been sober for seven hundred sixty days, which I have been. Right, nice. But the app, I change that. I edit it because it says I've been cocaine free for seven hundred sixty days. So it's a cocaine app. People don't know that. So when I share it on social, so I've got here. You just change it to sober. <coughs> I've got yep. sober journey. So, yeah, when it goes, it says I've been sober for, here, yeah, it says I've been sober for. Yeah, right, you take so, it out. So yeah. I, I yeah. take the cocaine thing out and put um, mm. sober. So I've been cocaine and sober for 760 days because one leads the other for me. I have one sip of beer and I want to. Mm. Like I drink that heaps normal beer. Mm-hmm. It's non non-alcoholic, right? And I drink that and I think I want a lime of coke. Because of the taste of beer? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, because it's just a habitual thing for you. Talk to me about, so you have this last bender in Coogee. Looking back on it, what made that different from the rest? Was there anything particularly like crazy about it or it was just kind of just another bender and you had that voice memo that kind of snapped you out of it. I was sitting there talking to my sister. It was her birthday. Yeah. Her birthday is on the 1st of May. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting there talking to my sister. I'm just like, what the fuck is going on, you mm-hmm. know, like with you? And then I just got off the phone. I go like, no, I've got to change. You know, I've got to, I've got to make some changes, man. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I did. And that's what, and, that, and that's what I did. Yeah. Fucking mess, mate. What was the come down like, and what was the process of like a week later? You're like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get my shit together because I can't. Like, I imagine you've done, you've tried to do this many times before. Yeah. So talking about come downs, I used to get bad come downs when I was like, what did that look in, like in Tasmania? Like walking around with my dog Chevy like that, mm. like fucking. I'm anxious. I fucking feel like killing myself. Like I can't sleep. I'm restless. 
in the end, I didn't get come downs. I didn't get come down. Because you were never fully clean or what? I don't know. I enjoyed the fucking whole process of being off my head and then fucking feeling like shit and ordering the Uber Eats. It was like a fucking, I didn't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. I didn't give a fuck about myself. I didn't care how I feel. I'm suicidal. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Fucking die mm-hmm. then, brother. Like I didn't mm-hmm. care about myself and that fucking shows because I was doing heavy amounts of fucking drugs. So Was it just Coke as well? Like and ever anything else? Yeah, Coke and what's the other one? G, fucking MDMA, yeah, cigarettes, ecstasy tablets, whatever I could get my fucking hands on, man. And then you're clean. So 760 days ago, you make the decision. You said you're up and down. It's not linear. You know, if someone's listening to this, and they might be, we talk about mental health a lot and addiction. Trent Knox came on and kind of spoke about his sobriety journey. Legend. True legend. Um, someone might be listening to this kind of in it now or like very early in their journey. Was there anything that you probably needed to hear or anything that you'd say that might help or would have helped you it during that time? Everyone is different, man. You know, you can't paint everyone with the same brush mm-hmm. um, and everyone needs different things. I'm very fucking, even though I'm mentally unstable. Do you feel that you are now? Oh, yeah, at some stages, like, and I need help, mm-hmm. I'm very mentally strong at the same mm-hmm. time. So if I say something, I can fucking do it, mate. Like, I, I can adapt to situations. Like, if I'm wrong, I'll put my hand up and say, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm wrong, and I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. I'm very good at adapting and changing if I want to. If I don't want to, that's a big reason. So if someone's struggling, you got to figure out what your purpose in life is, okay? So... Figure out what your purpose in life is and get some, you know, some routine and fucking something that you care for or love for and do it, man, and do it every day. Like I just dive straight back into training. Even though I was training when I was off my head, I stopped and I just stopped hanging. Even though I was a bad example in the end to myself, no one could stop me, but, you know, I was just hanging around different people. People that wouldn't do that anyway, you know? You said um, you've got to find the purpose of your life. Is that what boxing is to you? Yeah, it's my everything. Like I'm mm. I'm 38 and I'm trying to have one I want one more fight, you know, because I've never really spoke about this. I fought this guy named Tyson Lantry. And I like Tyson, I respect him, he's a good guy. I fought him at the arse end of all my benders and even though I won I thought I won the fight, the judges said that he won the fight. And I said, Okay, no worries. So I can either lay down or give me the rematch. Mm-hmm. Let me, because if a kid falls over, you, you're told to stand up and fucking get on with it and try again. So, like, if you fall over in life, where well, you're going to fucking stay down. So, like, let me have another shot mm-hmm. at it, yeah, like I did with the Olympic Games, yeah? So I've been trying to get this fight happening. It's a fucking nightmare. Just promotions, yeah, this, that, and people want money, this mm-hmm. and that. So I seen Tyson in, uh, and I respect the guy. I went seen him in Adelaide at the at the fights, and I went up to him. I said, Tyson, brother, how are you? Good luck to your fighters. Hey, I said, Bella, are we going to do this fight or what? I said, if you don't want the fight, Bella, tell me now, and I'll leave you alone. But if you want it, let's make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like, yeah, I want it. I said, okay. I said, what I'm going to do, Bella, I'm going to pay you an extra 2000 bucks on top of your purse, whatever mm-hmm. they pay you. 2000 bucks to take the fight, to make sure you take it, yeah? He's like, yeah. I said, same weight, same everything. I went up a weight to fight him at his weight. I said, same weight, same round, same, I don't care. Eight rounds, six rounds, whatever. I said, just take the fight. He goes, yeah. I said, so I'll get someone to send you a contract? He's like, yeah, okay, sweet. Dang, shake, shook his hand. 
Now I'm trying to get the fucking promoter to send the contract. So when I fought him, I sold $40,000 worth of tickets, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to fucking know what they paid me, right? Fucking peanuts, Mm -hmm. okay? But it's okay. That's okay. That's a boxing game. I'll guarantee I'll sell that many tickets again and make these guys money. So all they got to do is put the fight on. What does this fight mean to you? Why are you willing to pay him $2,000 just to make it happen? Because I want to prove to myself that I can beat this guy. Mm. And I know I can. But let me be at my best. And then even though I'm an old man now, he's only 27. Wow. I'm 38. Mm-hmm. I can. I know I can do it. And if I can't, then I can't. Will you be okay oh. if you can't? If you if Yeah, of course, as long as they give me the chance. Mm-hmm. If they don't give me the chance, that's when I'm not going to be okay. I'm going to fucking be dirty on these people that fucking won't give me the opportunity mm. because I'm offering what I can do, okay, and I've done a lot for the sport of boxing and I've done a lot for the kids and I've, I'm always trying to help out. Will it be your last fight? <clears throat> Is that a retirement potentially looming? Look, if I was to lose, 100%. But if I was to win and look good, then we'll see. But I just want that fight. I had to sit down with uh, my mate Jacob Rocket today and I brought a new car off him. Mm. He operates Lexus. So he deals with Lexus and the ownership here and he's good mates and works with No Limits. Fuck, Bella, I'll buy a car off you if it means get me the fight. I brought a brand new car. Cars out there. (laughs) Brand new car. Brand spanking new Lexus (laughs) out the front. Right, Jacob Rocker, make the fight happen. Matty Rose, make it happen. Tyson's down, I'm down. Tyson's a good guy. Nothing but respect for him. He's coached Jamie Pittman. He's one of the guys that got me in boxing. I come home off my head on weed when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Turn the TV on, Jamie Pittman's fighting. I'm like, what's this stuff? He's fighting at the Manchester Commonwealth Games in 2002. Never boxed my whole life. Four years later, I'm at the Commonwealth Games in 2006 and I won a bronze medal for Australia. How crazy is that? incredible, yeah. So that's his coach and I'm really good friends with Jamie. Wow. We'll start to wrap up shortly, but I'm kind of keen to hear, like you've had this amazing healing journey. It's still going, you know, you still experience anxiety, but you're clean and you're sober. Yep. What are the things that you do now when you want to numb yourself or you're like some serious shit has gone down, like Chevy dies? What are your coping strategies now and do they work? Just feel it, man. Really? Feel it. You know, like I I was always a hard-nosed kid that wouldn't cry. I remember getting kicked out of my house when I was a kid and I said to my mum, I'm going to go, I'm leaving mum. She's like, I don't care, go. And I'm like on the front doorstep and no one ever, she didn't ever come and get me. Where, yeah. did, where, did, where were you going? I don't know. I was fucking like this big. And then um, she didn't come and get me and I went in and I'm like, fuck, she didn't, she didn't come and get me. And then one time I decided my mate's house up the road and I didn't want to stay there. And the only reason I ran back home and my mum was on the phone in the kitchen and she's like, where the fuck is he? And I'm like tapping. I'm like, mum, I'm here, I'm here. And she's like, get the, get up there. So my sister carried me and her friend up to this mm. place where I had to stay. And I'm like, only reason I stayed is because they said that I could sleep in my clothes and I thought I was growing up if I could do that. Like, and I remember that. And I'm like, fuck, they, no one wanted me. And I remember being like drove out to this farm somewhere and I'm like on the phone with my mum saying, when am I allowed to come home? Like, and other places fucking, they used to make me eat hind spaghetti with bread. They cut bread arm mm-hmm. and put the fucking bread in the hind spaghetti and it would go all soggy mm-hmm. and I'd have to eat it. And I didn't want to eat it and they make me eat it. at these Fucking these care places mm-hmm. wherever I was. I don't know where I was. 
but I was never at home. So then I was like, fuck the world. And then like, you know, after Olympics, London, I fucking lost and I cried and I was very upset. But then like from then I just held my emotions, you know. And then when Chevy died, fuck, like I've been Katie two years now. She's never seen me cry or upset. Wow. No one Even has. though you feel like safe with her and you feel loved no, by no, her. No one. And then when Chevy died, I cried and I cried and I cried to my psychiatrist on the phone. It's crazy, man. Like I've cried to so many people now and I think so much of my shit as a kid is coming out, you know, like so much. And it's funny because I miss Chevy so much and I don't understand grief because I want to know why the fuck aren't I crying right now because I miss that dog more than ever, Mm. the same as I do when he first died. And, like, it's funny, like, the only time I feel close to him is when I'm crying. I'm feeling it. Yeah, I'm feeling it. So, like, sometimes I'll fucking watch videos of him and start crying because mm. I want to fucking feel that. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand how the brain sort of stops. It's crazy, it's isn't It's incredible. It? Like, I'm... I definitely cry regularly, but I will often not cry when I'm sad because it's... It's just a coping thing. It's like mm. I can't actually go into that. I need to just survive and get through it. And then often after the fact, I'll cry or I'll cry when I'm easily frustrated by small things because it's almost like an excuse that like lets the floodgates open and you're like. I remember. I remember when I was a kid. Mm. When my Sorry, when my um my little niece was a kid, like she was mm. fucking four or five years old. She used to stay with me, right? And mm. she used to get allergic reactions. And she was like crying one night and she's like, couldn't breathe and she's like got hay fever and that. I'm like, I look at her, she's crying and I remember I said, stop fucking crying. What are you crying for? Like, And I had to grab myself and go, Luke, what the fuck are you doing? She's a little girl. Don't get angry at her for crying. And just like touch her and say, well, it's okay, darling. What do you need? And she stopped crying. I was like, fuck. Because like, no one ever did that for you. And like when Katie, like when we first got together, Katie crying, my ex-girlfriend's crying, stop, stop fucking crying. What are you crying about? Like mm. we're arguing. Like, we're talking, don't cry. What's crying doing? Instead of going, fuck, it's okay, darling. And that's how I am now with her. If she cries, I'll give her a cuddle. Mm. And so, But, like, that's because when I was a kid, no one fucking taught me how to deal with my emotions, man. And because potentially crying was seen as a weakness. <clears throat> like, mm. you don't want to show that you're weak. You have yeah. to care for yourself and, like, survive. Yeah, and, and I will never... I watched this thing on suicide about a, a guy that lost his kid to suicide and he goes around speaking and I watched the the thing and the one thing I took out of it is he goes, I never showed my family that I was struggling. They always, they didn't know about, I nearly went bankrupt five times. They never knew that I was struggling for money. They never knew that I'd be upset or cry. They always just seen dad happy, Mm -hmm. all this money. And he goes, I believe if I had showed my son all the struggle I was going through and showed him that I was crying, then maybe he would have known that it was okay to be like that. Particularly. And that, and that fucking hit me hard, man. I'm like, fuck, like, you got to be vulnerable with your kids in a certain way. Mm. Obviously, there's got to be rules and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah and goalposts, but you have to show your kids that it's okay to fucking be vulnerable and be upset, especially if you're a boy. I was going to say, it's particularly powerful hearing <coughs> not only like a man have these realisations because I think men they get the short end of the stick when it comes to emotional awareness and and being allowed to feel. I think that's slowly changing. But also like you've come from a life and a family and a culture and a sport where it's all about 
the tough exterior. Yeah. So for you to be sitting here and saying like, that's what we need to do is pretty powerful. Like really proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, you, you're like, it's okay to, if you're upset, man, let mm -hmm. it out. Mm -hmm. Like far out, that little dog, man, that little dog saved my life when I was, when he was alive and when the dog died, he made me a better person and I'm softer. I'm a better person because of that little dog, mm. you know, and I'm more understanding. And instead of someone being upset, I'm like, I can sort of understand them and mm -hmm. it's nice. For sure. It's, um, grief does change you in many ways. Yeah. But moving forward, like you're going to have this fight, you're going to win, mm. but what are the other sort of, you want to be a dad? Are there any other things that on your journey you're like, I want to do that, I still need to do that? Yeah, I'd like to go somewhere and just do like a retreat where I'm just trying to work on my trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a place that I've looked at that I might go away for you're away for seven days and you mm -hmm. just no technology, nothing, and you're just sort of there and with other people and talking to psychiatrists mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. psychologists and trying to just work on becoming a better person, you know, and I feel that I'd like to do that before I become a father. Also, you know, I wanna open a gym, I wanna do a lot of things. I wanna work with at risk youth. Um, I think you'd have so much to know. share and so many ways to kind of guide and support them. Yeah, I just want to be there for people and help people, you know, like even like at the vet, you know, like when Chevy died and people went coming in there and losing their dogs, like I just felt like going up and giving them a cuddle and, you know, mm -hmm. a couple of times I did and went up and told, like seeing another person crying about the same thing that you're crying about is fucking hard, man. Mm. You can really feel for them, you know, and I don't know how people lose children and can deal with life afterwards because, you know, they're soldiers, man, you know, and I take my hat off to everyone that's struggling in life and, and just keep going, you know. You just got to keep moving forward and surround yourself with good people and just try to better yourself every day and stay away from drugs and alcohol. If, if you can have a drink and be social, do it. My girlfriend can. I can't. I have a drink and I want to get off my head. And If you could pull up a chair with like little Luke and tell him <coughs> just don't pick it up like, or tell him anything, would you? Or would you let him go yeah. on the journey? If I would tell my younger self one thing, it would be to believe in yourself more. Mm. You know, even though I've accomplished a lot in boxing, always a lot of self-doubt. And the only way I overcome that self-doubt was through training very, very hard. And if anyone knows me, been around me when I trained, they know that I trained immensely hard. And that was one because I was trying to fight the demons in my head of self-doubt and also the drug addiction mm -hmm. to try and make myself feel like mm. I was going to be okay because I'd destroyed myself for two days mm. on a fucking bender. So I was trying to punish myself. Do you feel like you're at a place now <clears throat> where you can say you love yourself? Yeah, I'm good to myself now. You know, like mm. I'm probably in the best physical shape I've been in in my life and I'm 38 years old. Mm -hmm. um, mentally, definitely. Still a long way to go and the journey's never going to end but we're going to... It's we're a gonna, journey, as you said. Yeah, life's a journey. Huh? I'm interested to hear one more kind of question before we wrap up. You mentioned that one of your regrets is the dogs and your ex. Is there anything else that you feel like in this moment you want to acknowledge or...? <clears throat> yeah, not finishing school. Really? Yeah, I should have finished mm. school. It's very important. Um, it's very important for the youth today 
did they get a good education? Because, you know, if it wasn't for boxing, I'd be fucked. But I'm lucky that I found boxing. Mm -hmm. That Um, was your community and that was your support system. But still, like, I struggle with a lot of shit. Like, I can read and write, but, like, I've read one book my whole life. I'm reading my second book at the minute. What are you reading? It's on... um, it's on the concentration camps. Wow. Um, yeah, it's a crazy book. You should read Happiest Man Alive. It's yeah, by Eddie Jaku. He was a Holocaust survivor yeah. and he has lived through the most horrific trauma ever and <clears throat> like he's grateful for the sun in the morning and like yeah. small things. It's, yeah. it's super powerful. Yeah, so I would have finished school. Probably never touched cocaine <laughs> either. would have been a fucking but smart move. But Look where you are now. And I often believe these things like you've come out the side stronger and softer in many ways. Yeah, and fuck. you're able to impart that like this is going to inspire so many people who have been affected. Maybe they're not using cocaine, but they've got addiction in their family or trauma or anything. Yeah, and, and addiction is generational. You know, like it's been there for me and I want to stop that. It stops here with me. No more. You know, my kids aren't going through the same shit that I had to go through. That is super powerful. Yeah. Thank you. I want to be the best that I can. That's my next goal in life. You just will to be. be there with my kids all the time. You know, all the time. Just be there for them. Whatever they need, you know. Make them work hard, of course, but like I'm gonna be there, whatever they need, I'm there. You know, they can rely on me. I don't know because I'm not a parent, but I often hear friends who are parents say you, when you become a parent, you like re-parent yourself because you're giving your kid everything you never had. Like you're loving your kid in ways and validating them and it's almost like you're parenting yourself. That's a great way of putting it. Mm. So you'll have that opportunity. I can't wait to see it. Me too, bro. Thank you so much. I honestly find you the most inspiring person. You have just tackled everything head on. You've been super vulnerable and generous today in what you've shared. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about that you want to talk about? Any stories or anything that you feel the need to kind of like just get out there? No. No, maybe another time. For sure. I've I've nearly died a couple of times. We can talk about that another time. (laughs) Yeah, we'll save that for the next episode. It's been a couple of occasions. Okay. All right. We'll save that for the catch up. Um, I finished the podcast. I ask everyone the same question before we wrap up. So you can answer in as many or as little words as you like. That question is, Luke, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is, is love. Love and kindness, you know, and just... Be kind to everyone, you know, and and fucking love love life, man, because it, it goes really quick, you know. Just if you surround yourself with love and get rid of the negativity and anger and just be kind and do for others. My thing is doing for others. I get fulfillment out of fucking buying people gifts or being nice to someone. That for me is is what it's all about, you know. So just love, you know, spread the word love around. Thank you. With that note, we'll wrap up. I'll put all the like links to Action Jackson and your Instagram and everything in the show notes. People can look out for this fight that's upcoming. But as I said, I'm so bloody proud of you. You're a legend. Yeah, and, thank you. And um, like I really, really take my hat off to you because it is not easy to sit here and talk in the way that you did. And I know you're feeling a bit anxious. You <coughs> rocked it. Like yeah. I've interviewed people who they say they want to go there and they just can't go there yeah. and you did it. So you're no, awesome. Thank you, darling. 
Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please let me know who you'd love to hear from next or if you have a story to share, I'd love to get in touch with you. You can connect directly with me on Instagram at Life Chats Podcast, one word. And every review and share really does help so much in the early days of building a podcast. So if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it on social media or you can snap a pic of where you might be listening and jump onto Apple Podcasts and give us a review. I really do appreciate the support more than you know. Have a beautiful morning, afternoon or evening wherever you may be listening in the world. I'm Georgia May and this is Life Chats. Life Chats.